0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is Charles Scribner III. He's an art historian, author, editor, and lecturer based in New York, and he specializes in Baroque art, music, religion, and literature, especially authors published by Charles Scribner's Sons, founded in 1846. And he's author of Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing published by Lions Press and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. The book shares an entertaining look at the legendary publishing house that his family built, as well as its history. For everything about Charles Scribner III, go to charlesscribner.com, and you can follow him on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And Charles, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, This, um, yeah. this, is, this is all
1: technology is a little new to me because I tell people I'm a boomer, not a zoomer, but,
0: um, <laughs> but but I'll get used to it. You'll be fine. I had this image of you just writing with a with a quill, but that you know that just may be my take on it, just because of the family history. But I guess the so, the logical question and the obvious question, and I usually don't like to ask obvious questions, but I will in this case is why did you decide to write the book? I listen. I love obvious questions. <laughs> my father used to say to me, uh, "Forgive me for
1: being obvious, but the I find the obvious is these days often overlooked." <laughs> and that's a one. That's a wonderful question, and the short answer is that uh, my good friend and the per, and personal editor on the last, well, I'm counting this one, the last four books, Michelle Rapkin, told me I should write it. Uh, before going to Florida last winter uh, for exile, winter exile in Florida. But I I was going to do a uh, a walking tour of Rome with Caravaggio and Bernini to follow up the recent book that she'd edited on religious art and music called Sacred Muse. And uh, she said, well, Charlie, that's a nice idea. She said, but the book you really should write is the book about your family publishing history because... If you don't write it, those stories are going to disappear. And um, so she gave me the marching orders and I went down there and I just had a, my wife and a puppy to take care of. <laughs> I, didn't play, I didn't play golf. I didn't play bridge. So what was I going to do all day? And I don't like to sit in the sun. So I wrote seven pages a day for 30 days in a row in one manic month. And that's why the book is
0: 210 pages. It's as simple as that. <laughs> now, the second obvious question, which you'll like how do you research this? Is it family archives, a combination of family archives, public information, public library, people that may tell you stories that were around during certain periods of time?
1: Well, I had uh, most of the research I had in my mind in terms of the, let's call it the general outline of the story i mean i've been living it and i've been working with my dad for so many years and growing up even as a little boy hearing the stories from him and then he um he did an oral history that was published as a memoir called in the company of writers and in conjunction uh when he died in uh, 1995 i it was the the 150th anniversary of the publishing house in 96 and i had an exhibition mounted at Princeton, of the, uh, the history of the publishing company from 1846 to 1996. And the catalog for that had a timeline produced by this wonderful curator down in Princeton, John Delaney. So when I sat down in Florida, I had in front of me some talks that I'd given on the family history and on the publishing company in years past. But I had this marvelous timeline, and that took me through. I know it's out of vogue now, in colleges to teach art history chronologically, the, uh, but, but that's the way I was trained. Go start at the beginning and go, you know, work up to the present. And the, the, to finish your question, I couldn't have written this book in so short a time had it not been for
0: Google. Because, ah, so you are into modern technology. There you go.
1: Well, in, a, in an iPhone way, because <laughs> what would happen is I would be sitting at the laptop typing, and whenever a question came up, like, when did Trotsky write his memoir? Where was he when he wrote his memoir, My Life? What about Mussolini? Who, was his, who helped him write the—I'm uh, ta- I'm picking terrible examples from history—or or Churchill. Um, his multi-volume history of World War One. I. I wanted sort of background information that was not in my head. Well, I would stop writing and I would Google these questions and I would get, you know, original sources. And if I wanted to know about the movie for Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, well, I'd stop and I'd Google movie, Farewell to Arms, and I would get the cast when it was filmed. I mean, everything was there, it would be like writing in uh, the Library of Congress. It was all there, but at a, at, at, at a, at a fingertip. It, it was absolutely marvelous. And I mean marvelous for me as in the process of writing, because it never interrupted the writing. It was like taking a little knowledge break instead of a coffee break.
0: Yeah, and, no, that makes sense, and you don't have to. You don't have to get in the car and drive somewhere or take transportation. No, and yeah. you don't
1: have to check out the book or look in the stacks for the. It's <laughs> if you know the question, and I knew the question. I knew what I didn't know, as I was writing. I knew what I needed to fill in the gaps in my knowledge, and so if you
0: know the question,
1: the internet is absolutely a miracle.
0: Now there's no doubt about it. You were mentioning about not teaching art history in college campuses. I don't think it's even fashionable to teach history on some college campuses. It seems to have gone the way of the buggy, unfortunately. Well, the idea of, the idea of chronology just seems to be out of favor, and
1: I don't understand it, because in every form of popular entertainment, think of the, you know the movies we watch, or the novels we read, or the miniseries we see on television, it's all chronological. It goes episode by episode. It moves in time. That's how we and that's how we live our lives. But somehow that notion of of progression from the beginning up to the present is out of favor in academia, and I don't understand it.
0: Yeah, it's beyond my scope. I've, I fail to understand it as well. Did you feel any pressure, given your family's history and your last name? Did you feel any pressure to get it right? To get it exact, to get it to a point where it positively and realistically, rather negatively, realistically reflected the history of the, the publishing company.
1: Yes, I really did. I mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, we're living in the we're living in an age of hype and factoids and mixture of fiction and 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 fact from, you know, everything in every area of our lives, and I just felt I, I the book is selective. I mean, if, if I'd given myself a year, I'm competing today with Barbara Streisand. Well, her book, she <laughs> wrote over years, and her book comes in at close to a 1,000 pages. Well, I didn't give myself a year. I gave myself a month, and I'm I'm really, in a way, pleased that I did because it is selective. I'm not covering every author we published or, you know, Every editor who worked for the firm—it's got Max Perkins, of course, some of the the famous lights—but it's not it's not a comprehensive history. It's more of a family historical memoir. And but I wanted the facts to be correct, and I would take time out. And at the end of the day, I would send sections to retired editors or people I'd worked with in the business, and I would write—I'd send them a section. I'd say, "Did I get this right?" Is this your recollection too? No, I really wanted it to be. I, I really wanted it to be fair and um, and accurate.
0: I like the way you were. You were your own fact checker by sending it to retired editors and others to make sure that the recollection was correct and the facts were correct.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I thought why not, and I would and and they would make some suggestions, or and and I just thought why not take advantage. That was again, thank God for you know being on exile in florida and having <laughs> uh having email at my fingertips oh, so it was yeah. very easy it's a whole it different was very world. easy to check with them and it was a wonderful experience because it brought them back into my life i mean i've been out of scribner's for almost 20 years i left in uh, 2004 and it was wonderful having the reconnecting with the alumni so to speak sure and none of these people i might add are there at scribner today these were the These were the people who were there with me and my dad. But it was wonderful. And that's why the last sentence in this book is a quotation of a favorite saying, uh, favorite quotation of my dad's by Montaigne. Uh, At the end of this experience of this adventure, I wrote, uh, quoting Montaigne, I have no more made my book than my book has made me. The experience of writing it was was uh, an education in itself for me.
0: I get the sense that you always like to learn as well as teach. Would that be fair?
1: I I really, I I prefer asking questions than answering them. Yes, Yes. no, I mean, I was the pain in the neck from a schoolboy on. I was always the one with my hand up asking the dumb questions. But that's how you learn.
0: Right. And the the thing is, some people reach a certain age and they think, well, they know everything and they're not going to, to go beyond that. And just as a reference to the fact that you're just getting used to the new technology, you obviously know Google, but uh, I know when we first started with the conversation, you were having some technical issues, but it's you learn by doing sometimes. And in the case of your book, you learn by writing. And you, I'm sure you found out some things that you didn't even know about or that you were surprised to find out. Could you share one or two of those? Yes, I will. I'll give you an example. The, uh, you know, my father was my
1: greatest teacher. And... He had wonderful sayings, and I I put most of them that I could remember uh, in this book. For example, he had no use for people who began the day quoting the obituary page <laughs> of the paper. His comment would be if they if somebody said, "Oh, Charlie, did you see who died in the Times today?" He would he would he would comment. He'd say, "You know." people are dying these days who never died before. <laughs> and that was the cut. But, but on a more serious note, he said to me early on, he said, just remember, writing clarifies thinking. You The, the act of writing is uh, leads to discoveries, leads to insights, to ideas, to conclusions that had never occurred to you until you tried to put the words on paper. And um, I'll give you an example. One of the sections of the, the book that's particularly meaningful to me because it involved my father's relationship with our most famous author, Ernest Hemingway, was Hemingway uh, giving my father at his apartment in New York, at Hemingway's apartment on 62nd Street. And this would have been in 1960, I think, um, or maybe early 1961. He gave my dad a copy of his handwritten last will. And he said, now take good care, take this to your office and uh, lock it in a safe or filing cabinet and don't lose it. And I guess he was thinking of Hadley, his first wife, losing his manuscripts on the train in Paris or at the train station. And my father said to him, said, if I lose this, I'll shoot myself. And Hemingway (laughs) replied, that wouldn't do me any good. (laughs) Anyway, so I told the story about how Hemingway came in the next day. With the excuse that he needed to look up something in the valise, he'd given my father with the will. And my father knew darn well that this was he just wanted to make sure my dad hadn't lost his will. Okay, so Mm -hmm. he found it. Everything was happy. He had a cup of coffee (laughs) uh, and famously said, my father said, uh, uh, would you like a little cream in your coffee? And Hemingway said yes. And, And my dad said, how much? Typical Hemingway, just <laughs> enough, just enough to change the color. Even, even the prescription for pouring the cream into the coffee cup had a sort of poetic uh, aspect to it for Hemingway. Well, anyway, oh yeah, flower. I, I told this story, and as I was writing it, it then dawned on me at the end. My father had never commented to me or to anyone, to my knowledge, the obvious conclusion or the obvious point, not point, but the obvious conclusion that we can draw from this story, that I drew from the story, he had never uh, mentioned to me and it only occurred to me in, in writing it. And that, that was Hemingway entrusted his will, his handwritten will, not to his lawyer, not to some official confidant, but to his young publisher, I yeah. mean that must be a first in publishing history. I would think so. And There's by the way, yeah. when his when he died, not long thereafter, his lawyer was shocked to <laughs> learn that from my dad that my dad had the will. The lawyer was not pleased. I bet. And, <laughs> and he said to my dad, he said, "I'll be there right away, Charlie. We may uh, I don't we may have to destroy it." Well, that set a little bell off in my dad's mind. And he thought, I'm not about to commit a felony. Um, And so he called his lawyer, who was the great Horace Mangies at Wild Godshall Mangies. And he said, this scene of the two of them, each holding one (laughs) as they were reading the will, each holding a corner of the paper. And then finally, Hemingway's lawyer breathed a sigh of relief and said, oh, he's left everything to Mary. Everything's fine. Uh, (laughs) But... (laughs) <laughs> but the point, I guess what I'm saying is there were revelations to me about our history, about the importance of writers, about certain incidents that i had known or thought I had known about that I didn't really understand uh, until I put it down on paper.
0: You mentioned earlier about sharing parts of the book with former editors, friends, to get a sense that you had the facts right, the, the dialogue right, et cetera. When the book was finished, did you send a copy of the book to these various people to get them to do a full read and just to double check everything one more time?
1: Oh, that would have been asking too much. Although I will say, and I named them at the end, th- there were some people who, who, to whom I did send the, I sent the book as I wrote it. Yes. And um, one of them uh, is now the top publisher in new york today he's the ceo of ashette usa michael peach who was a very young uh, editor with me back in the late 70s early 80s and he worked with my dad on the editing of hemingway's a dangerous summer the dangerous the dangerous summer about the bullfighting in spain Mm -hmm. and um, he did an absolutely brilliant job at that no i sent him every chapter and he read the whole thing and i sent it to a couple of other key people i really wanted but, but I, I wasn't going to impose on everybody Most no i, people, I was I just sent them their their sections
0: well that's that's humble of you but i think people would have enjoyed reading it people that knew you and knew the family knew the company would want to read the whole book and i was curious if you got feedback from those people after they read the book maybe they bought it on their own and oh no no well, i you.
1: you know so these key people and actually beginning with the person i sent uh, I sent each day's work. It wasn't even a chapter. it could be part of a chapter uh each day's work, I sent it to my son Charlie in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and he had some very good comments to make of things he thought I should take out that were quite appropriate and 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 things that he liked he was a he was a very good he was a very good uh family editor.
0: Do you think that your son carries on that tradition, the name? all of the aspects of being a Scribner or is he ha- having his own life different from what you grew up with your father and being close and learning from your father? Does he learn from you and does he go in a similar direction or does he go into a totally different life without getting into any privacy? But well, I'm, I'm just curious. Well, no,
1: he's got a really quite a different life although it kind of circles back to scribner's because he is an envi- he is a, a conservationist he's in charge of a, one of the river keepers the black warrior river keeper in alabama which was an offshoot of bobby kennedy's hudson river keeper which launched the whole idea of protecting the waterways the bays the rivers the sounds etc it's now worldwide and he was uh, a he was uh, an apprentice to bobby when he was a college student at Princeton. And that all came about because his dad, yours truly, (laughs) uh, signed up for Scribner's Bobby Kennedy's book called The River Keepers in the late 90s when my son Charlie was still in boarding school before he'd gone to college. He ended up writing his senior thesis at Princeton on the history of the Waterkeeper Alliance. So, you know, books do, as I, I think I commented in my story, at the end of this, books affect lives.
0: They do. And they have implications for the world as well, and the, the entire world. You can, you can even go back to one of your writers, Mussolini, and there are others, uh, obviously, who have written books, Trotsky, etc. You, you mentioned earlier on about the, the editor, Max Perkins. How significant was he in the history of Scribner's?
1: Well, I gave my title for his chapter was was a, a bad Latin pun, Editor Maximus. Uh, <laughs> Max Perkins was probably the most famous editor of the 20th century, and rightly so. He really encouraged and championed these new talents: Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Thomas. He, he was, as an editor, he did most for Thomas Wolfe. He didn't touch much of Hemingway, but he was very, very helpful in in nurturing Hemingway and encouraging him and befriending him. But Hemingway's chief contact at Scribner's was my was my grandfather, who mm-hmm. he called his best friend. Uh, but and, and Perkins was wonderfully supportive of, 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 of Fitzgerald. He really launched it. Fitzgerald was turned down twice by my great grandfather. And Perkins didn't give up. And the book was finally published, This Side of Paradise. And of course, two books later, two novels later, I should say, um, uh, out came The Great Gatsby.
0: Was there a good relationship between Max Perkins and the family? Because you just gave an example where your grandfather didn't want to necessarily publish a book, but Max was persistent and over time was able to make that happen. Well, well
1: but one who didn't want to publish it was actually my great-grandfather, great-grandfather. who would have been a generation older than Max. No, okay. Max and my grandfather uh, they went out to lunch almost every day, and I—I'm sorry to say it was there were two more martinis at that lunch than there should have been <laughs> or would have been today. But uh, they really—they were really very, very close friends as well as 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 publishing colleagues. Uh, but there is a famous story about uh, Perkins uh, wanting to. Uh, to uh, restore, let's say, some four-letter words in a Hemingway novel that had asterisks across mm-hmm. the page. Right. I mean, across the word. And um, uh, my grandfather said to, he said, well, Max, what what words do you want me to to put in?" And Max said, "Well, just a minute." And he went to his office and he wrote them down on a piece of paper and handed it to him. And, he, and my grandfather said, "Max," he said. You can't even say these words and you want me to publish them. <laughs> so, but they had, but the real, rela- the, the real banter back and forth was between Hemingway and my grandfather in letters. And I often, I thought before writing this book that I, it might be nice to publish those letters because they really had an extraordinary friendship. And but the thing was Hemingway was so outrageous in his what he called joking rough, and my grandfather again I think late at night he would dictate the letter in the office, so there'd be the typescript letter in uh, in the file that his secretary had typed out, but then he would write these long pages of PSs in longhand <laughs> late at night at home in New Jersey. And when I read them, I, and he was trying to keep up with Hemingway's outrageous humor. And when I read them, I just thought, forget it. Humor right. does not work in print. And <laughs> our whole family, my get, grandchildren will be forever canceled if these letters ever saw the light of day. There's certain joking that you simply cannot put in print. And um, it's just not appropriate.
0: When you, um, yeah, when you finish the book and I'm sure you had a sense of satisfaction. You probably also thought there are things you could have added afterwards, but that I think is pretty normal. But overall, you were satisfied once you finished the book. Did you have any thoughts about some of the people that the publishing house worked with? Certainly not Winston Churchill, but I was thinking of Mussolini or Mussolini and others that have a certain Stain in history, or, or do you look at it from the point of view, well, that was history, so therefore it should be published?
1: Well, uh, look, Churchill was our author, and we're enormously proud of Churchill. He was, and he was a close friend of my grandfather's. Uh, again, they liked, to, they enjoyed their brandy together. But um, no, Churchill's, Mussolini's book protested too much, it was ridiculous. Uh, my father was not thrilled when I found it on the shelf uh, <laughs> where it had been sort of tucked away. Right. No, it, it because on the jacket it says in longhand, it says there is no other autobiography by me. Benito <laughs> Mussolini he signed it, and of course that's, yeah that's true. But the but the, the greater truth is that he didn't write it. He wasn't an author. It was it was authored by our American ambassador to Rome who interviewed him. and But again, now you, uh, you you raised earlier, one of my discoveries, I thought, well, if Mussolini didn't write this book, who helped him? And so I went online and I researched it. Well, it wasn't only the ambassador who wrote the introduction. We knew that. But he had a ghostwriter named Luigi Barzini. And Barzini, decades later, now living in America, wrote a bestseller in the mid-1960s called The Italians. And I discovered that prior to that, after ghostwriting as a very young man, Mussolini's, he, be- he turned sort of anti-fascist. He was under house arrest during the war and was liberated by the American G.I.s. It was really quite a wonderful story that uh, uh, Mussolini's ghostwriter was liberated by R.G.I.s. And, and then later wrote a bestseller in the 1960s. And the bestseller was published by Athenaeum, which later became part of the Scribner Book Companies. Uh, as Einstein said, coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous.
0: <laughs> Before I let you go, I know we have about a minute left, so this is going to be a short answer from you, but it could take a whole show in and of itself. What is the future of books? Given technology, given the level of education these days, public education, etc.? What do you see as the future of books, and is there always going to be room for p- book publishers?
1: I think there's always going to be room for books. I, I, I have to admit that what my great treat was recording this book for audible. And I might add um, th- that I have this is the only book I don't worry about typos. because why? Because the director that I had at audible, their standards are so strict every word spoken every word narrated on the on the audible the, the you know the audio book has to be absolutely perfectly matched with the printed text so it was the ultimate form of proofreading to read the whole book and the audiobook takes over 8 hours so you can imagine reading it out loud is not something i ever would have thought of, of doing as a form of proofreading, but it is the ultimate proofreading because I would be stopped by the director who would say, no, 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 you got that word wrong. And I'd look at the page and I said, no, I got it right. The text is wrong. I'm going to have it corrected. And so it was it, it was a wonderful form of proofreading. But back to your question, I think there will always be a place for actually silently reading books and writing them. Because there are discoveries that are made by the silent reader and by the writer in in just putting words on a page. Now, they don't have to be on a page. They could be on a screen. I mean, we're not talking about papyrus versus, um, you know, vellum versus uh, regular pages of a book, paper. The the medium doesn't matter. But the, the end result, words to be read silently will always have a place and uh I, I i don't worry about that my father worried about it in the mid 60s to general sarnoff the chairman of rca because uh, all these sort of uh, audio aids were, were entering the the school classrooms then in the 60s and my dad worried aloud to sarnoff that uh, the book might be displaced by all this new media and sarnoff said don't worry charlie just remember there are more candles sold today than 100 years ago.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Charles Scribner the Third. He's art historian, editor, and lecturer based in New York. He's author of Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. It's published by Lions Press, available on Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Charles Scribner Third, go to charlesscribner.com and follow him on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And Charles, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. It was a real
1: pleasure. I really enjoyed every minute of this uh, revisiting a history.
0: Same here. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.